Get ready for the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Avrin. Each week featuring a candid and raucous conversation with some of the most innovative, outspoken, and entrepreneurial business minds in the world today. This is the Very Visible Business Podcast, and here's David Avrin. Hi, it's David Avrin. Thanks. Welcome to the Very Visible Business Podcast. Thrilled to be here today with one of my favorite people in the world. And if he's not yours, he will be. And if, and if he's not going to be in the future, then that's your problem because he is that good and that smart and that ballsy about the stuff that he talks about. And so we're going to talk about that today. Let me start with the official uh, introduction here. Damian Mason is an entrepreneur, speaker, farm owner, author, podcaster, and self-made business person. He actually has lived and accomplished what he talks about. He delivers insight and information to inspire individuals and organizations to do business better, which coincidentally is the name of his new book as well. Audiences positively respond to his real-world example, straight talk, smart comedic edge. I will tell you on a personal note, one of the things that, that I love about Damian Mason is, is he, besides being brilliant, he is just straightforward. He tells you the things that, that you need to know. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're considering being an entrepreneur, small, medium-sized business owner, this is about no BS. This is about what it really takes, and it's beyond the fluff. And then for, for, for the curmudgeon that he is, he is remarkably funny. And, and only in reading, Damien, in reading your, your background and realizing that you had a background with Second City and that you studied comedy and comedy, I, either some people have it or they don't. And, and coming from you with some of your sort of in-the-face, straightforward business talk, and then laced with that, that element of humor, it's freaking brilliant. So anyway, there's my gushing introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, say hi to Damian Mason. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me here on the Very Visible Business Podcast. And thank you, David Avrin. And you can tell your, your listeners that you and I met in the basement of a resort in Colorado where you and I were both there to further our own business. We were doing yes. some actual hands-on training ourselves. Yes, we you were. not only sell training. We've actually paid for training. And what's interesting is... I didn't know you from Adam, and I complained it was awfully cold, and you uh, you dis you discounted my toughness because of me not enjoying the cold in that room that day. So I that did, was my I, first ever meeting. You guys, what's very funny is, is we had not met before, and I was probably a little bit bold and made some comment about your your ovaries or something. <clears throat> and you looked at me like, who the hell is this guy? And I think everybody in the group thought we were we were just at, at loggerheads and we're, we're ready to punch each other out. And from that developed a great friendship and a great respect for, for what you do. But for, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about, about your business. Because as is true, because for those of us who speak for a living, many of our colleagues tend to be speakers as well. But speaking is just the delivery mechanism. I mean, what we're really doing is we're selling wisdom. And that wisdom can be... Uh, delivered and applied across a variety of platforms. And you do it through a variety of means as well. So before we talk content, talk to me a little bit about your business model and your background. Yeah, well, and, and you know, a lot of people listening to the Very Visible Business podcast probably Thank you for are, saying the name of my podcast multiple times. So I, I just want to appreciate that. Yeah, of course, I'm going to say it plenty of times, man. Well, I, have you on yours. I will name oh, your podcast over and over as well. So here's what's important for your listeners, because let's face it, they're tuning in right now, they're sacrificing their time, they're not really sacrificing it, they're investing it, and we want to give them something of value. So what's important, as you and I both know, like when we're on a stage talking at a business conference, is can that guy out there in row 13, can that lady over there at table number 11, can they see themselves when they see you and I and actually say, wait a minute, I can totally relate to that. So it took me a long time. I was in my 40s before I realized that there are some folks 
that have these things called trust funds. And I never had one of those. There are some folks that come yeah, into me this. There, there's some folks that come into this world. And as I always point out, and I've gotten a little bristly because I'm 49 right now. And I think after age 50, I'm even going to be more bristly. I make sure that in my bio it says self-made because I think that the folks listening right now are saying, you know what? I'm out here busting my ass on Saturday also. I put in a 12-hour Saturday and all the people that work in you know, corporate are acting like, oh, you know, I had a hard week. I put so I think that's important to draw that distinction. And you and I both uh, came from a blue-collar kind of background, let's say, and, and made it. So my wife and I were blue-collar people. I have a degree in agricultural economics from Purdue. I was raised on a dairy farm. My dad worked nights on the railroad. I'm the youngest of nine children. So I make the cracks in front of my audiences. People say, oh, you own farms. Did you inherit the home farm? You know, what the hell do you inherit when you're ninth? I mean, I'm ninth. You're, right. There's <laughs> nothing left. One ninth, one ninth when the pie was pretty little to begin with doesn't amount to a whole lot. Right. So, um, I was a, a lighting fixture salesman because in 1992, I got out of college. Things were pretty tight. Uh, we were coming off of the bad 80s in agriculture. We were coming off a little bit of recession in the overall general economy. So I sold lighting products for Cooper Industries, which is now part of Ethan Corporation. I won a Halloween costume contest in San Diego, California, where I was living at the time, dressed up as Bill Clinton. So my company starts using me at trade shows and sales meetings, and I've always been funny, as you alluded to. When you're the youngest of a big family, you're a funny person because you want to get attention. So yeah, so I, you're fighting for attention. I'm, I'm the second oldest of six, and everybody, it, it's not just fighting for that last piece of chicken and for the, uh, the, uh, the popsicle in the box and they're all gone, but it is for attention, isn't it? Yeah, you, you get also your timing good gets at it. good because yeah. you're completely overpowered when you're the littlest of the nine children. So you've got to be sharp and funny, but also your timing has to be impeccable. So I always said that my writing is just average. My timing and crowd interaction is what the real strength is. And that comes from the lifetime of having to do it. Um, I did go to Second City and take those classes you alluded to. And any of your listeners that don't know what Second City is, David, you can tell them about Second City. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's out of Chicago. It's a great improv group. And a lot, of, a lot of the Saturday Night Live alumni, some of the original ones, the John Belushi and all of they came out of Second City. And it's, it's amazing um, skills building in terms of timing and comedy. And it's, it's on one of the, uh, the toughest stages, but with the best people to work off of. And so anybody who comes out of that has some, some immediate street cred. So your listeners right now are saying, okay, tell me why comedy is something I can learn from. Well, first off, everybody says, okay, how can I be, how can I profit from one of my strengths, one of my skill sets? Being funny is like being tall. You either are, as you and I both are, or yes, you are. are not. And you will be very, it'll be very obvious to the world by the time you're 20 years old that you are either funny or not funny and you are either tall or not tall. So I make the point. You can take a funny person and through some training, make them a lot better. Just like I can take a natural gifted athlete and, and, and send them to the right coaching and say, this kid's got some God-given talent, but he needs to work on his mechanics. He needs to work on some conditioning and he's going to yep. be a good quarterback, whatever. So it's the same thing with comedy. You either got the talent or you do not, but you go to Second City and how this worked for me. Bill Clinton show took off great guns 1994 quit my job at Cooper selling lighting fixtures created a business called executive entertainment and it was a selling vehicle for my political comedy show after about a year of cutting your teeth and you're doing gigs in basements and parades where you almost have a heat stroke you start really developing your act 15 minutes of comedy becomes 20 to becomes 30 minutes of comedy and you're doing better gigs and it took me about two years to get that going 
then things really flew. You know, some TV shows, some SAG memberships, some movies. So things went great guns, and we knew it was going to come to an end. What happened was worse than coming to an end. I figured we'd take a year to sort of retool out of Bill Clinton to my next business venture. Was saving, investing money. Uh, like a lot of your listeners are like probably saying, oh, yeah, man, things are really good. You were smart. You saved, you invested, you dealt, did all that stuff. The problem is a perfect storm happened. Bill Clinton went out of office, so the demand for my political comedy dried up a little bit. Right. It didn't go completely away. 9-11 happened, and nobody wanted to laugh at anything political for about a year. And then people were afraid to travel and even get on airplanes and go to conferences. Yep. And at the same time, I needed to now start living off of my investments. Remember what happened after 9-11? The investment world got chopped in half for about right. a year. So yeah, even the value of the investments that you had had lost so much for their value. So that's, that's the background. So what we did, we pared down, as a lot of your listeners can probably relate to, hey, man, things were terrible, and my wife and I are scrambling, and we spent a year sort of retooling, figuring some things out. We started liquidating some assets to live off of it while we're still trying to keep my business going. I'm changing up my version and brand of political comedy, and it dawned on me, I'm a pretty good timer, and I'm a pretty good one-man act, if I'm going to stay in this business, I bet you I could get stronger. So I went to Second City for six months and learned comedy, writing, and improvisational in a troupe. Because now when you can play off or learn how to play not just the one-man show, so that was the purpose of doing that. It was really to fill time, the creative void, make my brain think creatively again, and also to strengthen some of my weaknesses. So that's kind of how that went. And then by 04 or 05, we were selling me as a speaker again. My investment started to rebound. Uh, we bought another farm in 2006. And since then, like how I make a living, I give speeches, I write. Uh, I, for a while, was played on serious radio. I also manage the farms and we're up to 280 owned acres now. Uh, I did buy the home place where I was raised. So we got that going on. So that's, that's how business looks to me. Um, we still have a few other little interests as well. Sure. You know, sometimes those who, who teach, uh, it, it's sort of from the old adage, don't just tell us what you've done, tell us what you've learned. And as I've gone even through the, uh, the overview of your new book, um, which is tell us, tell us about the new book and tell us when it's coming out. And I want to talk a little bit about the lessons because I think some people who've been through hell and back, those lessons are, they're not academic, they're real world. And what I really appreciate about your content and how it, it manifests itself in this new book is it's straightforward. It's not, it's not like you're, you're um, artificially trying to kick people's ass. It's like, this is the truth. This is the truth that some people won't tell you. It's the truth that the motivational people necessarily won't tell you or won't address. But it, it, it's, it's, you know, our, our mutual friend Rory Vaden, he talks about there is no elevator to success, right? You have to take the stairs. The only true path to success is doing the things that other people aren't willing to do. But you go much deeper in the new book. So tell us about that. Uh, the book is Do Business Better and is geared to entrepreneur, solopreneur, business owner, people that work in corporate that want to start their own business. It is a business book. It's about the traits, the habits, and the actions of successful business people. I've got some first-person examples only because I've lived it now for 24 years. Right, but that's, it's, it's, that's, re that's relevant. I, I like the real stories. Nobody needs to tell the starfish story or tell broad stories about FedEx or something else. Is This is, what, this is the real world. 
Yeah, I just I just went to lunch here in my hometown of Huntington, Indiana. I live here half the year. I live in Phoenix the other half of the year. And I saw a guy that I worked for way back when I was 18 years old. And I use him as an example in the book. His name is Richard. I'm not sure if he remembers me, but I never forgot him because I'm not sure Richard uh, has anything beyond a high school diploma, if a high school diploma. But what success really comes down to is when you see opportunities and you have the balls in the backbone to throw yourself out there in pursuit of those opportunities. And the example I give about a guy like Richard, who I just saw this morning for brunch, uh, you know, he, he, he had a bulldozer and a backhoe and a dump truck. And then he, he kept working and then he had some land and there's some low land that was a flood ground behind his shop. And he had Phil to get rid of on these jobs where they would pay him to remove stuff. So what's he do? He goes and fills it in. And then he makes that property worth more money. And then all of a sudden by the eighties, people are paying money to store their crap that they don't want in their garage. So he starts building storage units. He's got maybe 20 storage units there. In the late 1970s, roller skating became popular somehow. So he had another little scrap land. He built a cinder block building, put in a roller rink, had a place for his kids to work, had a nice little side business. So, you know, you talk about what's it take to be successful. Well, you know, I find it interesting there by hails and, and regales uh, Google or, or Starbucks or whatever. Right. right. And those are great stories. But let's face it, you're not going to become Google. Uh, the people listening to this podcast right now are probably not going to become Starbucks. No, right. no, they can be. They can become like Richard, the guy who had, you say, well, that's not even glamorous. He just had storage units and an excavating business. You know what else he had? He had a uh, porta potty business because every job he's working, they're renting toilets. So he's thinking, why wouldn't they just rent from me? I'm already here doing these other three things. So you can say, is there anything glamorous about roller skating, storage units, backhoes, and porta potties? No, but it's also pretty glamorous to say I'm worth millions of dollars of a business of my own volition when I'm in my 40s, and that's the story of Richard. Right, but but I also like that that you 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 also support that old adage that it, it's less important. Who cares about a business plan? Yeah, the banks want a business plan because they want to make sure they're not going to lose money. You have to have a vision. You have to have stick to itiveness and and perseverance and resilience. Because, because shit's going to happen. But those who have those ideas and push for and most people don't have the guts or the chutzpah to do it. And I'm not even criticizing those who don't because, listen, the world needs its ditches dug as much as its mountains climbed. And I know, go and embroider that on a pillow. Um, but, but for those who, there has to be a, a level of resilience for the ups and downs. I mean, guys like you and me, I haven't gotten a paycheck since 1995. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't have paychecks. I have gigs. And there's some months that are great and some months that are less. And I'm in a really great time in my business. But my mortgage doesn't change. My, uh, my, my daughter's college just goes up as, as does what I pay my ex-wife. You know, I mean, we, it, there's something about resilience and about getting up in the morning. And people are like, how is it? Because I work out of my home um, because I travel so extensively speaking. And they're like, is it hard? And I'm like, no. I get up, I look at my high maintenance kids in my absurd house and I get my ass down to my office and I work. And, and I, that's your tone, not being mean and you've got some, some humor in it, but you really lay it out. This is not academic, it's not fluff. It's, this is what it's gonna take. This is what you're gonna face. And you're either gonna, you're either gonna persevere or you're gonna throw in the towel and go get a job. Okay, so since we obviously are talking to business people that are, are forward thinking, let's go back to the thing, are you going to become Google or Starbucks? Well, most of the people listening to this right now are not going to become Google or Starbucks. And again, no offense to those companies, They're, they've done fine. But there's a couple of things here. Uh, the story about Richard, 
and, and his backhoe and his skating rinks and his storage units and his porta potties, he didn't have a business plan, but he probably had a plan. And more importantly, he right. had, like you said, chutzpah and balls and backbone to make it happen. The thing that folks get hung up on about business plans, I, I make the joke, I'm going to be talking to the Indiana Bankers Association on uh, one week from today. I'm going to tell them because I tell us to bankers, every banker I'm in front of, like, you people love business plans. Uh, you need a business plan to borrow money. You don't need a business plan to make money. And so the problem is the non-entrepreneurial minded person thinks, oh my gosh, I have to have a business plan. I have to develop a business plan. The bank wants a business plan. They become like these documents that these people then, they, they treat them like there's some sort of biblical verse that I have to adhere to this. And you think, my God, the marketplace is going to change in three years. Or, or less. Right. You're, you're, you're just dealing with so much of a rapid changing marketplace. And when you fall in love with some document you drafted, it's just a piece of paper and you're going to then, I always make the point. So in three years, when you're making a bunch of money over here doing this, you didn't even foresee, but the opportunities presented itself. Should you just stick with what this thing that you wrote three years ago? No, you should move on. So I've never had a business plan. I find it interesting. Phil Knight, who founded Nike. Right. He says in his book, Shoe Dog, he never had a business plan. So I think business plans are fairly uh, unimportant. I think the two biggest things really, if I were to be asked, and, and I've broken it down in the book, of course, that I say there's four traits and 10 habits, but let's just go with the ones that you and I think are important. You talk about resilience. I think it comes down to your ability to tolerate risk. Like you said, you haven't had a paycheck in 23 years. David, I haven't right. had a paycheck since 1994 either. I've gotten paid. You I, bet. There was no guarantee. There was no guarantee. And, and how much of that, Damien, I don't mean to interrupt, but how much of that went according to plan? Yeah, the work Not ethic. much of mine. Yeah, the, the work ethic was according to plan because I yeah. knew I could always work hard. Uh, the creativity, I figured I'm pretty funny. I'm going to work really hard at creating the thing. Uh, can I say that the money? No, the money didn't go according to plan. There's been the ups and the downs of that. And so you get better. But but even the direction, I mean, look at you. I mean, who who at 18 has a plan and says, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna sell electronics and then I'm going to go into comedy and then I'm going to be an agricultural speaker and then I'm a general business guru, sage. And the reality is, I mean, what's the old line um, Mike Tyson said? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. Right. And But it's not just on the positive because I, I like what you said that you're, you're talking about being able to take it advantage of, of opportunities when opportunity knocks that you're there and available but on the negative side as well that resilience things are going to happen and the, the question is do you have the skill sets do you have the mindset um, because here's the problem and I don't want to be one of these old guys who is lamenting about ah oh, these damn kids today no. you know because <laughs> I'm the father of three millennials right but I saw the greatest meme the other day and it said it said go fund me 1970s version and it showed a kid pushing a lawnmower right right the, the kids now they're looking for money and i get hit up all the time our, our doorbell rings three times a week they're fundraising and of course we want to support the football team and the cheerleaders and everybody else and that's all part of it but every kid who wants to go to a to a missions trip or a church camp they're asking people for money constantly and there's a whole different mindset that that's how you get it now you do a gofundme page and you get people in, in, and I know I sound like I'm lamenting, but in our time, in your time on the farm, I was less blue collar growing up, but I have that mindset is if you want to raise money, go mow lawns, <laughs> go earn it instead of raise it, earning it and raising it. What a, what a, what a juxtaposition in terms of mindset. 
Yeah, it's a it's a little bit different. And I'm like you, I will never be, we don't have children, but I don't pull this, oh, these damn millennials or Generation Z. I think there's a few obvious observations as they would pertain to a, a younger person than to maybe you and me. I think they're a touch more um, sensitive, the political correctness, sure. uh, everybody winning. There's that, that might be negative, but with that also, you know, the kids on bus number 16, when I was a little boy, picked on the kid with Down syndrome on bus 16, and you don't see that anymore. So right. while we'll see what I think that might be some of these kids are a little more too sensitive or a little too, shall we say, fragile for the real world because they're going to get maybe their feelings hurt. They also are not as much of little peckerheads as we had when maybe you and I were growing up. Right, absolutely. And, and they're, they're very open to change. They're very eager about all. And like I said, I'm not lamenting. I mean, this is the gener- these are the generations going to take care of us. But, but there's something that I really like, even going through the outline uh, of the book, about a lot of those requisite things and those things that the world doesn't care about, your passion and your joy and you wanting to you know, live your dream, but they really care about feeding their families and guarding against disruption and building uh, their, their leadership teams. But okay, I'll, give you, I'll give you a great example along those lines. Yeah, in my book and in my speeches, I, I make this point because I'm the anti, I just had a person send me an email today and said, where can I find that blog you wrote about passionately against passion in the workplace? Because right. This whole thing, if you go on LinkedIn, it's ridiculous, David. Everybody and their sister on LinkedIn is passionate about what they do. I'm like, I read, no kidding, a profile on LinkedIn that connected with me. He sells like reflector tape or something. And he told me how he's passionate about reflector tape. Who in the hell can be this passionate about reflector tape? So anyway, um, one thing about your very point there and that your listeners are sitting there saying, hey, I want to be the very visible business. I want to be very successful. I want to have my phone ringing and my email box full of potential clients. Never forget that it's about them. It's not about you. Yep. Great thing about comedy, having come up in comedy, even though I do humor now, I don't do pure comedy slots like I once did, but I've certainly never forgot the lessons. What I call breaking down tape is critical analysis of watching yourself in action. And the biggest benefit of breaking down tape is it only makes you better. You and I have both watched tapes of ourselves delivering presentations. It sure. makes, makes us strong. It also makes you cringe sometimes. You're like, why in the hell did I stammer right there for 30 seconds? But the other part of it, most people do not look at their own offering from their customer's objective. The great thing about what you and I do, if we watch a video of ourselves on stage in front of 300 people at a meeting in Kansas City, we now see ourselves from our client's perspective. And that's very, very powerful because now you're getting it from their perspective. So that kind of goes to your thing about GoFundMe versus I want to actually earn my income. I sold cut code knives when I was in college. Uh, my daughter did as well. Okay. It was learning experience. Actually, it was part of a class. They said, you've got to actually sell this stuff in addition to your classwork because we want you to learn how to make a canned presentation and go through all the feature minutes. So about four years ago, I said, hey, Lori, we need new knives. We looked up a kid local that has a, that selling cut code knives. And I thought this would be great. I can see how this works. You know, 20-some years later. The kid came here, and they've changed the pitch, David. He got out the knives, and I knew what I wanted because I knew the cut code knives. Then he started telling me how he wants to go uh, to the Orient, and he wants right. to travel to Asia. Because it's the right thing for him. He's going to, he wants to raise money. He's selling knives. He says, if you'll buy knives, you'll help finance my dream of traveling to East Asia. 
And I finally got done with that. I said, hey, let me tell you something, kid. I'm going to buy some knives here because I need some new Cutco knives. I don't give two hoots in hell about your trip to East Asia, nor does anybody else. Right. Right. Well, and the thing is, it's not that we're anti. It's just that's not why we buy. We buy. There's a great old line that says that we, we, we make decisions emotionally and we justify them intellectually. Yes. And those who will, who will dismiss that because they're misreading it. It's not that we're being overly emotional. We buy something because we want to. We justify it because we say it was the right price, it was on sale, but we want to. That's what we want that. I want that. I'm gonna I wanna buy that. Okay. So, you you talked a little bit ago, David, about a juxtaposition. Okay, let's just go back 30, 40 years ago and let's just use our example, Richard. Richard didn't say, come and rent a storage unit for me so that I can send my kids to East Asia for three months. Right. <laughs> he said you have crap that's taking up your garage. I've got this space for $32 a month. You can come and stick it in this little five by 10 spot. He didn't build a roller rink because he said, I want you to fund my dream of world travel. He right. said, you want somewhere to go on Friday night in Huntington, Indiana. Here's a roller rink. We have rock and roll music, hot dogs, and skate rentals. Yeah, the value proposition is, is can you offer something that solves a problem that somebody's willing to pay to solve? And our colleague, Sally Hogshead, has a great line. She says, the bigger the problem, the bigger the check, right? Yeah, yeah. The more, the more you're solving, the more problems. And I guess, you know, going back to who we think is listening to this podcast right now is the important thing that they're taking away and they might even be pulling over and jotting down is, again, they don't, the, the customers don't care. Again, just imagine, if you will, like David and me, watch ourselves on video to make our videotape stronger. So that way, if you're thinking about hiring us at the next September's meeting in uh, you know, Vancouver, we send you this. Well, watch yourself and look at your business from your customer's perspective and then realize they care about themselves. They do not care about whether or not you're funded to go to East Asia for a three month hiatus. Right. Right. And, and, and it's, and differentiation, of course, is, is, it's not just what you do. What do you do better than someone else? And so I, I love your no nonsense advice for all of that as well. Uh, when is the, uh, and, and of course this podcast, both audio and video will live on beyond the time when we are recording it. So when is your book due in, um, you just got a great deal with Wiley to publish. Well, we hope, we hope by spring and I'm still working on those things and I will come back. I will come back on and be a guest on the very visible business. Podcast. Outstanding. My new book is coming out in, in spring as well. So we're all doing that as March? well. Are you a March for you? Pardon me? You about a March for yours? I am, I am a March. Uh, it should be hitting the stores an official launch. You always want to be safe around April. And that's my new customer experience book called Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. So I think for both of us, it's, it's not necessarily research-based. It is anecdotal. It is, it is wisdom, but it's, it's delivered in a way that's fairly pointed. And I think yeah, people hear that. I think there's a lot of, yeah, go ahead. You can even say poignant. I know some people use that word or edge, and I get that description sometimes, but you know, again, we opened this whole uh, recording by talking about David. People, uh, you know, I was 25, man. I, I said, I, I, I only worked for a couple of years in corporate, but I've been working since I was a little kid. I fed the dairy calves on, you know, growing up and I yep. worked for the landscapers and I worked for Richard, the guy I just described. So I had these different jobs always. So I started my thing. I didn't have a lot of fallback. And that's the other one that I, I think when we talk about your listener and they're saying, what do I need to do? 
I get it that as you get older, you probably become a little more risk averse. Like you don't want to lose everything that you've worked hard to gain. But if you look at what usually stymies and stifles growth, it's then a complacency sets in. And it's either that I don't have the, I don't have the push to try new stuff or I'm afraid of trying new stuff. And I guess I never wanted to lose that. I'm going to still be willing to put new things out there and experiment with new things, but not probably going to risk everything. It was easy to risk everything when you had nothing. And so- right, right. But I think, I think looking at a different way, I think the biggest risk sometimes is not putting in the effort. The risk is saying, I deserve a day off. I mean, everybody does. I mean, we, we have the best world, best life in the world be- because we can have that flexibility. And me with my kids, I'm the, I'm the dad. I was the only dad in, in every one of their school, you know, parent-teacher conferences or, or because, because I have the, the freedom to do it. But I also travel. I just booked this morning. I'm going to go speak in Oman in, in, in the Gulf at the end of next month. So, we're, but not working, not being out there is I think the biggest risk because there is no, there is no guarantee. Even for those who are employees, there is no guarantee anymore. Now, there's a, there's a big thing where people think it's riskier than it is. And there's also those same folks that have, you and I both know this because we've neither of us had a job for a long time in a traditional sense. Right. So you go back to like my political comedy days and I was crushing it for a while. And then you'd be at some corporate event and you and I have worked them copious amounts of times. So there'll be a gentleman that walks up to you and he's had three scotches because it's 830 at night and I'm the sober guy because I'm the one on stage. And he comes up to me afterwards and I'm dressed up as Bill Clinton. I had just done a political comedy show and here it is, you know, say 20 years ago, 1998. There's the Monica Lewinsky thing. There's the Ken Star, whatever, you know, it's it's a big time to be selling political comedy. And then this happened to me all the time. That same type of person would say, man, I wish I looked like Bill Clinton. I could be making easy money like you too. Right. And I was thinking, if you look like Bill Clinton, you'd still be standing right here drinking those scotch drinks and the company that you work for would be employing you and you would have not had the balls or the backbone or the resilience to go out and quit your job and start something like this. So what a lot of times- There there is no easy money. That's crap. No, I think it boils down to uh, a lot of folks look at something and you see this a lot. I, I guess I'll go ahead and make a wisecrack about government employees. I see and hear government employees a lot of times saying, well, I could have made more money in the private sector, but I chose to, you know, whatever, be a fireman, be a cop, be a teacher, whatever. Like, well, right. kind of an arrogant statement. Who says you could make more money in the private sector? Have you done so? And, there you go. Uh, a lot of people then like, well, I could have started doing what you do. Well, you can. In fact, go submit your resignation. I make the point all the time. I quit my job with three gigs lined up. I had three political comedy shows contracted, totaling twelve hundred dollars of gross revenue. So I think you got to have you got to have a little bit of the um, uh, fearlessness. Yeah, everybody's not cut out for it. Everybody isn't. But but I think you make the point so well in the book and in the chapters and the titles and the summaries about all of those things and all those things that can derail you in the process. And uh, and and I'm I'm a big fan because I like that straightforward. And and you can say it's it's some people may call it edgy. I just think it's it's truth. And 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 I think so many people are coddled. Um, they're told to chase their dreams. Uh, even Simon, Simon Sinek, I'm a big fan, but this whole start with why nobody cares about your why. Sorry, they don't. They, they care about their why. You know, it's not their job to help you live your dream, connect with your joy, find your passion. Their job is to support themselves and their families. And, and you help them do that 
you can make that happen. Hey, listen, I want to be respectful of time. So I have what I do a speed round. So I want you to think for a second here. Quick questions. What is the worst advice that you hear being given in business? Well, there's one that you just hit on about dreams, and I could throw passion right in there. Yep. Be passionate. Passion is an extreme emotion. You know, it's just, it describes love. It describes sexual um, uh, allure. And it describes when you murder somebody you used to sleep with. Do we really need that type of uh, feelings and emotion brought into the tape. setting? Yeah, tape or sandwiches or tires. I'm passionate about about yeah, tires. Imagine about reflective tape. Like what oh. you would kill you would kill an ex-lover over reflective tape? I mean, come on, you're gonna go to prison. So probably there's that. There's the um, there's a thing about business plans. So we kind of hit it already. I think right. too much passion, too much dream, too much then the other side of it is not a that those are all feelings based. Then there's the one of I just gotta map it out with a business plan. I've got to have a real solid mission statement. What the hell's a mission statement? I mean, right. come on. They get very wordy, they become poetic. And I don't know that those are good advice. I think, you know what you have? You have a goal, an objective for what you want to do, what you want your year to look like, and your next two and three years look like, and how you're going to get there. Uh, those are more important. Outstanding. Best advice that you have been given? Life, That's business, fine. doesn't matter. Well, the easiest one is save and invest your money for the for the, the time being. You've got to always put money back in. So I think that's the one that helps you because if you are self-employed or run your own business, there's going to be a slow month or a slow quarter. And yep. it's really, it helps your creativity and it helps your business focus if you're not just over here going, oh my goodness, what am I going to pay my bills with? So if you have some money backed up, you can always then retain your creativity and your focus better through the slow time. What's your best gig? What's your dream gig, your dream client? Oh, I like associations that have large memberships where the people actually have a tie to me. Uh, I know that we, you know over the course of the years, you and I have done speaking engagements for such a wide, vast variety. I mean, yeah. I, I did a thing in the old days when I was in political comedy where 11 people, Merck was the client, uh, six of the people did not speak English. So <laughs> you know, what, what's that? The ones that you like are the ones where there's 500 people out there or more and they see themselves in you and it's, there's that connection. And also when they've got energy. I don't, I don't like the crowds that are low energy and also I like crowds that are smart because then they get the smart humor but they also can relate to your topics. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I didn't even say before. Even the political humor, people hear Bill Clinton, you have very smart, very biting humor. It is not, it is very... Um, Oh, cynical might be a big good word, but it's but it's sharp. And I will yeah. say, the first time I saw you, we had not yet met yet. Right. And because you had gone all out, you had done the prosthetics and everything yeah. else. I didn't realize it was you. Yeah. And um, and then tried to talk to you for a brief moment afterwards, where you were kind of an ass. Uh, but you were, but you were, you were in. Con no, I mean, it was as brilliant a routine, and it wasn't just because you know someone can talk like Bill Clinton. I mean, everybody thinks that they can. The, the humor was as brilliant, I think, as I have seen. So anyway, enough, enough of the, uh, the, the mutual love fest. How do people get in touch with you if they need to do so? DamianMason.com. D-A-M-I-A-N, Mason like a bricklayer. DamianMason.com. They can find me, Damian Mason LinkedIn, Damian Mason Professional Speaker on Facebook. I'm very active there. They can also keep up with me on Twitter, although that's where my detractors always seem to find me. If you notice, Twitter's almost toxic. Boy, there's always somebody about once a week that decides that they're just going to fight with you that day. And you're always like, 
typing in capital letters with an exclamation point isn't really a fight, dude, but whatever, if that makes you happy that you like <laughs> me today. So yeah, I'd love to do some work and I'd like to come back on your very visible business podcast. I think this is a, you've got a good idea here because you're going to share good ideas with people that can use it. I mean, that's, that's what's neat. Like I got the idea, the person that's listening to this podcast right now runs their own affairs and is saying, Hey, that's, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty dead on. Yep. Well, and the good news is there's a lot of smart people who can help those people who are open to listening. And it doesn't mean that everybody, you know, there's, there is the way and a way. And for both of us, it's, it's a way. Here's a way that works. And, uh, and that's why I want to have people like you on as well. Once again, Damian Mason, look him up at DamianMason.com. Thank you, my friend. We will see you, uh, see you on the road. Got it. David Averin, uh, be sure to uh, remember to subscribe to this podcast and share it with others as well. You can look me up at visibilityinternational.com. For past and future episodes, be sure to subscribe at theveryvisiblebusiness.com. You can also learn more about David Averin's keynote speaking and consulting at visibilityinternational.com. Connect with us on social media and check out David Averin's latest book, Visibility Marketing at amazon.com. This has been the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Averin. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.